public service announcement to all those listeners out there. Hmm. We have spoilers coming up in this coming episode. And every episode, we are a spoiler show. Mm-hmm. We hold no secrets. Nope. We tell no lies. Well, I, I don't know about that, but anyway, if you're a true cinephile, you've probably already seen the movies that we're going to mention in TV shows. But if you're not, you're just willy-nilly watching movies here and there, then you might have well, a spoiler in here. So Then watch your ass. Oh, <laughs> wow, wow, Tim. Because we're spoiling it. <laughs> Can you soften that a bit? Watch your sexy hot ass because we're gonna spoil it perfection <laughs> let's start this transmission this is stand by Hello, fans, and welcome to us. Yes, <laughs> a unity of two like-minded geeks right here. <laughs> yeah, welcome to us. Yes. That, uh, this is Transmissions from the Forbidden Planet. Mm-hmm. I'm Derek. Who the hell are you? Hillbilly Tim. <laughs> We're changing things up here a bit on the show. <laughs> yeah. Yep, I got a corncob pipe and a yeah. wow. <laughs> chuck <of> whiskey. <laughs> Oh my god, Andy Circus? <laughs> anyway, so we're going to dig into an odd topic this week. So just sit back and listen to your old pals Derek and Hillbilly Tim and we'll <laughs> we'll bring it to you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're going to delve into the world of murder. Inspired by film. Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. We're we're gonna stick to our regular menu of of uh, talking or, or um, we want to. What do you say? Talk a jock. Talk a jock. Yes. Yes. If you will. Yeah. And uh, right. And we're gonna. But we're gonna tie it into uh, murder, basically. And <laughs> when people get inspired or a little too obsessed with shit, and then they uh, end up killing people. Right. Because yeah. Because they saw it in a movie. Right. And we also know that there are those killers out there that haven't just been inspired by TV or movies, but there's the ones that have been inspired by like books like Catcher in a Rye by J.D. Salinger. And we aren't going to talk about that in this episode, but we do acknowledge it's other forms of media. Yeah, totally. So, yeah. But this is us dipping our toes into the very popular genre out there in podcast land that is the true crime genre. So maybe we can... Yeah, so yeah, we are delving into true crime in a way. But we're still sticking to our general theme of TVs and movies, right? Right. We're sticking to our menu. So buckle up, buttercups, (laughs) because it's going to get bloody. Whoa. Whoa. 
So this is just a trigger warning to the listening audience out there. Just in case you have an issue with listening to true stories, which is what we are going to be talking about today, of murders and sexual assault and stuff, of people who were inspired to do these horrible things, and they are based off of movies and stuff. This is real stories we're talking about, so if you can't deal with that kind of stuff, you might want to tune out and then come back to us on the next episode. Right on. I, I can agree with that. I'm going to have to leave. Yeah, I figured. Pussy. So for this story, we're going to have to go back to the year of 1976. Right. And uh, the movie we're talking about is Taxi Driver from the great Martin Scorsese. Uh, in this film, it depicts the scummy New York of the 70s, not the uh, Disney-fied one of today. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Thank God for the rain, which has helped wash away the garbage and the trash off the sidewalks. I'm working long hours now, 6 in the afternoon to 6 in the morning, sometimes even 8 in the morning. Six days a week, sometimes seven days a week. It's a long hustle, but it keeps me real busy. I can take in three, three fifty a week, sometimes even more when I do it off the meter. But uh, yeah, this film uh, has Travis Bickle, Robert De Niro's character, who is, I think he's either honorably or dishonorably discharged recently from the army in Vietnam and all that stuff. So he's, I think, PTSD. Right. And uh, probably a good helping or two of uh, regular old mental illness to throw on top of all of that. Right. So uh, he's chosen to drive around all hours of the night because he has insomnia. Mm -hmm. And this isolation that he builds up in himself, along with this helping of mental illness and PTSD and all of this stuff, helps him fixate on certain things. So first it's Sybil Shepard. He he sees Sybil Shepard and he kind of is stalking her, asks her out on a date. This weirdness goes on between them two. Right, right. When I walked in and I saw you two sitting there, I could just tell by the way you were both relating that there was no connection whatsoever. And I felt when I walked in that there was something between us. There was an impulse that we were both following. So that gave me the right to come in and talk to you. Otherwise, I never would have felt that I had the right to talk to you or say anything to you. I never would have had the courage to talk to you. Did you feel that way? And he, after this, uh, turns all of his pent-up aggression and obsessive-compulsive behavior towards this political figure who's either running for president or some seat in, in a political arena. He turns all of his aggression towards this person and eventually uses all of that energy into figuring out a way to assassinate this guy. So Travis Bickle's trying to assassinate this political figure in the film. Right. Uh, are you Charles Palantine, a candidate? Yes, I am. I'm one of your biggest supporters, you know. I tell everybody that comes in this taxi that they have to vote for you. Now, as stated before, this is the 1976 New York, so it's very tough, uh, uh, crime-ridden, dirty, nasty place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, most likely the people that you're bumping into while you're walking down the busy street, 80% of them are murderers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Back yeah. when you used to light a car on fire to stay warm. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was a different time, really. New York was a different entity at that time. Uh, Martin Scorsese was a new-coming director. No one knew what to expect from him. Robert De Niro was a respected actor who didn't do Dirty Grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Ugh. I haven't had sex in 15 years, Jason, and I want to fuck, 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 fuck. So Jodie Foster's uh, character, Iris, is really, really young. Uh, Travis Bickle's character tries to 
kind of protect her, be like this guardian angel, but she's so young in she it. She was pretty freaking young. It's yeah. just so weird. She was hot off of Freaky Friday. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's really weird. I, there's got to be something out there these days that would not allow something like that to happen. A girl that young to play that kind of part. I mean, maybe, but I really seriously doubt it. Cause when you're watching it, it's really kind of uncomfortable. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's not like he wants to fuck her or anything. No, 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 no. He's actually really, his main goal is to protect her. Right. He tries to send her home to her parents and get her a bus ticket or something like that. But he wants to save her from her pimp. Right. Right. Yeah. And, um, and Harvey Keitel plays her pimp by the way. Right. So right. Fifteen dollars, fifteen minutes, twenty-five dollars, half an hour. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it has a really full cast. It has uh, uh, Peter Boyle in, in a funny part. Yeah, that which is right. Is, is near the beginning. I think he's spread out through the movie, but uh, uh, a lot of different people. You have uh, Sybil Shepherd, as I mentioned, who plays the kind of love interest. Albert Brooks. Yeah. Albert Brooks, right? Yeah. Uh, as the movie pushes on, he ends up becoming, as I said, really obsessed with this political figure. The political figure ends up showing up in a place where he's gonna try to plan his move so he can assassinate this person yeah he uh, gets into place and then something happens where he misses his opportunity and he can't so then all of his frustration and his obsession turns towards the harvey keitel character john right yeah all all of the johns and stuff that are around that area and he turns it against them walks into this place where they're all hiding out in like this hotel or apartment or something and just blows the ever-loving fuck out of everyone Right. And he gets shot too. You assume he's dead. Right. And then at the end of the movie, though, everything kind of turns around and he ends up being honored as a hero for going in and saving all of these girls who were basically being kept there by these pimps and everything. They wanted to escape <laughs> all of that stuff. I, it, it Doesn't it like it leaves it open that he possibly could have survived the shootout, right? Yeah, yeah, no, he survived because at the end he's honored by the paper and all of this stuff. Oh, okay. Like he's this okay. local I've... hero character that ends up having all of his <laughs> his obsessions and assassination attempts for this political figure wiped under the rug because they don't really know that's the same guy, and he's lauded as a hero even though he's suffering uh, still from mental issues and who knows what's going to happen. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Great movie. Oh yeah, awesome movie! Absolutely awesome movie. Uh, but let now let's switch over to what happened in real life—a real life story that is akin to this movie. So, uh, there was a guy by the name of John Warnock Hinckley Jr. who was born on May 29, nineteen fifty-five, in Oklahoma. He was born to uh, apparently a wealthy family uh, out of Dallas, Texas, and had a pretty fairly normal childhood from mm. from, from all that I can t- uh, tell as far as what's online and what's what's there to research and stuff. But, I mean, I'm not an aficionado on this particular thing. I'm just going off of research that I did online. So if I have something wrong, if there's a book out there that maybe says more about what I'm I'm missing, then feel free to send it back to us. Right. But for right now, so uh, going back to Mr. Hinckley here, uh, he ends up graduating from high school in 1973. His family is uh, owners of Hinckley Oil Company. And that ended up moving to Evergreen, Colorado. Whoa, whoa, whoa. If you know anything about true crime, Colorado is a big <laughs> red flag. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, after he gets out of high school, uh, I guess he's an off-again, on-again student from uh, 74 to 1980 at Texas Tech University. He eventually completely drops out. 
Uh, but in between there, in 1975, he moves to Los Angeles with the hope of becoming a songwriter. Uh, his efforts, of course, were unsuccessful. And uh, so while he's there, he has this girlfriend that's with him. Uh, he decides to write his parents to see if they'll send him some money from their oil money. Uh, but uh, they do not do that. So then he ends up eventually uh, having... Bussing to- tables. <laughs> Right. Now, apparently, he's just too good for that. So he doesn't end up doing that. So he ends up uh, having to break it off with this woman that he's seeing and then move back home with uh, mom and dad in his 20s. So, but anyway, I guess uh, through part of his life or through different parts of his life, he was had been described antidepressants and tranquilizers to deal with uh. emotional issues, quote unquote. Uh-oh. Uh, and then during the uh, late 70s and early 80s, Hinckley began purchasing weapons. Dun, dun, dun. And I think we're all pretty savvy to know what the recipe means when we have someone out there with untreated or misdiagnosed mental illness mixed with the purchasing of any kind of weapon or firearm out there. It just makes uh, for a terrific recipe. <laughs> it's a great combination, <laughs> as we all found out in the last 10 years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Unfortunately, it just keeps happening. That recipe is just made over and over again, it seems like. But... Anyway, um, he goes on and let's see. So wait, does he move to Colorado or does he move to Florida <laughs> before he starts shooting everybody? Uh, yeah, well, I, I, actually he does. When he when he leaves California, he moves back to Evergreen, Colorado, where his parents live at that time. So yeah, he does. Yeah, right. So oh, yeah, Jesus, something about Colorado and uh, Florida. Don't move there, guys. <laughs> yeah. It's just not worth the risk, guys. Anyway. During his time, uh, apparently right before he came back to live in Evergreen, Colorado with his parents, he sees in 1976 the movie that is released, which is Taxi Driver, directed by Martin Scorsese, starring Robert De Niro and Jodie Foster. He becomes obsessed with this movie. And not only does he become obsessed with the movie, he also becomes obsessed with the actress Jodie Foster. So a few years after Taxi Driver comes out, uh, Foster decides that she is going to uh, enter Yale University. Hinckley finds this out. Who knows how? Because, of course, Internet's not a big thing back then. So who knows how he goes through finding this out? But he finds it out. He moves to New Haven, Connecticut, and for a short time begins to stalk her. Whoa. He enrolls in a Yale writing class and then uh, began slipping poems and messages under Foster's door. So he even knew where she lived on campus. Wow. But yeah, I mean, I didn't know a lot of this stuff about him until doing research for the show. That's crazy. He was writing her poetry. I wonder what it was. He somehow gets a hold of Jodie Foster's number and Uh starts calling her or something. Anyway, I don't know if it's her filing something against him, like a restraining order or something, but that ends up getting him kicked out of that area. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he ends up having to leave Connecticut and then uh, he goes away. So since he failed to uh, develop any kind of meaningful uh, relationship or contact with Jodie Foster, he starts to concoct some lavish idea where he's going to hijack an aircraft. And then when the media shows up, he wants to commit suicide in front of the cameras to get her attention to show her, hey, I'm doing this for you kind of thing. Oh, wow. Yeah, right? Yeah, I don't think I ever knew this part of the story. Yeah, he's cuckoo, man. Uh, but I guess that becomes such a large scenario that he doesn't really get all of his chips in order, thank God. And so he eventually scraps that idea. Oh, wow. Uh, he Where he goes from there is that's when he starts to settle in on a scheme Uh, And this is to impress her again. So he wants to assassinate the president. Yeah, which is what Travis was doing in the movie. Right. Yeah, exactly. He was just just kind of sliding into 
deeper, darker places. Right, deeper recesses of his mind and exploring all those dark, morbid areas of his brain. Right. Uh, he decides to turn his attention towards the president. Uh, he becomes full stalker mode, even starts to collecting all this memorabilia on uh, the assassination of John F. Kennedy and really delving into that, I guess going to libraries or something like that and collecting a lot of uh, stuff that's out there, information on it. But uh, again, uh, this becomes really obsessive. Yeah. But when Hinckley had the idea to assassinate the president at the time, Jimmy Carter was the president, and so he started trailing him from state to state. Uh, I'm assuming that Jimmy Carter at that time, it must have been around the time when he was running for re-election against Ronald Reagan. And so I don't know if he was planning on making his assassination attempt uh, in Nashville, Tennessee, but nonetheless, he was arrested in Nashville, Tennessee on a firearms charge and sent to jail. Uh, When he was finally released... Uh, he was penniless in the time and had to return home to where his family was. Uh, they, in turn, sent him in uh, to get some psychiatric treatment for depression and his mental health and all of that stuff. I guess they released him, but his mental health, of course, did not improve. Well, and you got to figure, too, this is at a time when that kind of stuff wasn't taken very seriously anyway. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, of course. And and the president he, the president that he goes after is the guy who basically shuts down a lot of the mental hospitals. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he def- I should say he defunds them. Right. Which is ironic in a way. But anyway. Okay. Right. Yeah. But so uh, he's dealing with the mental health issue. It's not being really addressed by anyone. He's continuing to buy firearms. And by the time he gets another plan to assassinate the president in line, Jimmy Carter's already out. He has been beaten by Ronald Reagan, who is now the president. We're going to put an end to the money merry-go-round where our money becomes Washington's money to be spent by states and cities exactly the way the federal bureaucrats tell us it has to be spent. Which, I mean, I guess shows his uh, openness to embrace either side of the political field by turning his uh, raging vengeance upon either Democrat or Republican. He's he's willing to share. (laughs) (laughs) But he begins to attract the movements of Ronald Reagan then. Uh Uh-oh. So on March 30th of uh, 1981, President Reagan just finishes addressing the AFL-CIO conference, and he's leaving the Hilton Hotel where that's taking place in Washington, D.C. Hinckley Jr. makes his move. So Hinckley Jr. used a 22 caliber ROM RG-14 revolver six times. He shot, fired at Reagan uh, as uh, Reagan was leaving the uh, hotel. Right, uh, He right. wounded a uh, police officer, a Secret Service agent, and the press secretary, James Brady. I guess James Brady was the most critically wounded, though. Uh, he was shot in the head. Right. Uh, Although uh, Reagan wasn't hit directly with the bullets that Hinckley Jr. fired, uh, he ended up being seriously wounded by a bullet that ricocheted off of the side of the presidential limousine that hit that car and then ricocheted and came back and hit Reagan in the chest. So uh, all the bullets that he fired, none of them hit him directly. It was the ricochet that got President Reagan. That's Uh, pretty wild. I I don't think I ever really put it together how close this is to Taxi Driver. Oh, yeah. With the Jodie Foster connection. Right. Yeah. It's crazy the uh, similarities between the movie that he was obsessed with and the girl that was in the movie he was obsessed with and then what ended up happening to him. It's not exactly like the movie, but, you know, it's it's close it's enough. It's close. Yeah. 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 
but it's weird. It's like I knew, of course, about this happening and everything, but until researching it, I didn't really know all of the elements that went into the the story. So it's uh, odd similarities for sure. Yeah, the way everything right went, went down. So, uh, but. You know, I'm sure he was even looking in the mirror saying, you talking to me, You talking to me? Yeah. <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> well, who the hell else are you talking? You talking to me? Well, I'm the only one here. Who the fuck do you think you're talking to? Because, you know, De Niro's not doing it. <laughs> right, yeah. He doesn't do that for anybody. Right. Right. Yeah. He's He's got... He's got standards. Well, I don't. I don't know. Maybe not these days. Yeah, right. I know. <laughs> Give huh? him a few bucks. He'll do it. Are you talking to me? Well, I'm the only one here, so you must be talking to me. But as I said, the uh, uh, the shots went off that day. Uh, Secret Service did act pretty fast, although he did get off all those shots. It was a bunch of mayhem, a lot of people in a small area and everything. So that's probably why, I mean, Secret Service grabbing him, moving his arm around, probably why a lot of the bullets didn't hit their mark or hit other people because the Secret Service had their hands on him at the time he was firing. And I'm sure he was just releasing everything that he could out of the gun just to make sure that he hit his target. And so... uh, Reagan got hit in the ribs, chest area. No, I think it hit him in his ribs. Yeah. It went under his arm. Right. As he was lifting his hand to wave at the audience, yeah. Right. And uh, so he was, of course, rushed off to the hospital while everyone else that was wounded was kind of laying there. As I said, the most critically wounded was James Brady, the press secretary. Brady, right. Yeah. Right. And he went on to... um, he was he survived it, but he took a shot right to the head right. and uh, is severely handicapped now. Right. Yeah. Well, he was. The Brady Bill is basically named after him. Right. It's like an, a gun control bill. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, basically, Brady was hit on the right side of his head with the bullet. Uh, the, he endured a long recuperation period and remained paralyzed on the left side of his body up until his death in 2014. But uh, him and his wife, Sarah Brady, they went on to serve as the chair of the Brady campaign to prevent gun violence. And that's where the uh, handgun and assault weapons restriction came from the uh, Brady Handgun Violence Prevention Act, which is known as the Brady Bill, as you said. Right. But yeah, it did affect him. He was paralyzed on his left side for the rest of his life after that. Yeah, I I always saw him in a wheelchair. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. So John Hinckley Jr.'s uh, trial started in 1982 and it was held in Washington, D.C. He was charged with 13 offenses. Hinckley was found not guilty by reason of insanity on June 21st of 1982. The defense psychiatric reports portrayed him as insane, mm-hmm. while the prosecution reports characterized him as legally sane. No. Right. I know. So <laughs> apparently the uh, result of this verdict ended up becoming a really big thing. And as a consequence, the United States Congress and a number of states ended up revising laws uh, governing when the insanity defense may be used by a defendant in a criminal prosecution. Idaho, Montana, and Utah ended up abolishing the defense altogether. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I was really surprised, especially, I mean, when it's a higher ups in politics, how he ended up actually getting the insanity defense, you would think that the higher ups would be like, man, I've got to get that motherfucker and then pull strings. (laughs) Yeah. Especially when it's the president. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Right. (laughs) 
But I guess during the uh, trial, it did come out that he was highly influenced by the movie Taxi Driver, which is why we're talking about this whole thing. So uh, that was one of the things. And when you step back and you really look at the whole story and everything, you see that movie Taxi Driver and then you see how akin his story is to it. I mean, it's 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 pretty noticeable that there is a likeness right yeah so that was his offense that's how this whole thing got tied into taxi driver and of course his obsession to uh, uh jody foster and all of that stuff so this is a this is a weird one what year was this like 81 uh the assassination attempt happened in 81 uh that uh, act that i was talking about about the insanity defense reform act that ended up happening eventually in 84 because of this trial but the trial happened in 1982 82 so i'm thinking too this is also in that same era of like uh heavy metal will yeah. turn your kids to uh, satanism satanism yeah and, you know what i mean Killers. so there's a lot of that in the air anyway so lawyers are looking to grab onto that shit oh yeah yeah and the media grabs onto it as well because uh, satanic panic is pretty prevalent right around this time yeah and of course albums coming out around this time are being attacked like things like black sabbath and uh, the, the way they went after uh, led zeppelin before this with the 1971 uh, stairway to heaven where they were supposedly you play it backwards and it tells you my sweet satan or something like that so a lot of things are being attacked at this time and like as i said the satanic panic is really going into overdrive right around this time yeah right right so all that was just a recipe for disaster i guess and they're defunding the mental hospitals (laughs) (laughs) right exactly (laughs) so all these crazy people are walking in the street now right exactly especially in san francisco it's still prevalent right now (laughs) (laughs) well it's you know it's mostly warm yeah and santa monica santa monica yeah lots of crazies so uh, because he was uh, found not guilty by reason of insanity, he ended up going into a psychiatric institution where he was held under psychiatric care, of course, until 2016 when he was released. Oh, shit. Okay. I know, right? So he's out there. He's walking around right now. He's a free man. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if this is because he didn't kill anyone or, or something. They made a uh, special case for him then. Right. Yeah, I guess obviously they did or, or something's going on there because, I mean, even though he didn't kill anyone, the, uh, James Brady, his life was affected for the rest of his life. From that time on to the rest of his life, he was affected by those happenings. And I don't know. It just seems... Cuckoo bananas? <laughs> right. Yes. It is a perfect case or cuckoo bananas. Thank you very much for that diagnosis, Hillbilly Tim. Uh huh. <laughs> so yeah. But uh, real quick, I did want to read a little bit of uh, our piece of one of the last letters that he sent Jody Foster. Oh. Uh, and it says, "Over the past seven months, I have left you dozens of poems, letters, and love messages in the faint hope that you could develop an interest in me. Although we have talked on the phone a couple times, I have never had the nerve to simply approach you and introduce myself." The reason I am going ahead with this attempt now is because I cannot wait any longer to impress you. Holy crap, huh? Yeah. That's crazy. He is out there. Well, he's reformed. It's a great system. (laughs) Yeah, he's he's perfectly uh, fine. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, very good, Derek. Very good. thanks. Thanks so much, Tim. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Oh, well. So, all right, we're going to flip the tables now, and it's my turn. It sure is. You go now. And I'm going to go with 
1994's Natural Born Killers. Yeah. That was a... Talk about a movie with a, surrounded by a ton of controversy. It was. It was. And no one, I think, no critic disliked it more than the writer, Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. When yeah. them people come here and they ask you who done this, you tell Mickey Mallory Knox did it, all right? Say it. Mickey Mallory Knox did it. I love you, Mickey. Mickey <laughs> Mallory he hated that movie. Right. Yeah, because this was back in the time when he was having to sell his screenplays right. to fund his other movies. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. So, what do we got here? In the, in the movie, we have the character Mickey Knox, played by Woody Harrelson. We have Mallory Knox, uh, played by Juliette Lewis. Detective Jack Scagnetti, who is the infamous Tom Sizemore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um... An interesting note there is Scagnetti's uh, name is also used as uh, Vic Vega's parole officer in uh, T- Tarantino's first movie, uh, Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, right. All that connection. Love it. So another interesting casting piece was Ed Wilson, who plays Mallory's dad, and that was Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> <laughs> he is brilliant in that, too. Really does a great job. It's just yeah, that, I know. that whole scene. So if your ass is in this house, it's my ass. So you move it upstairs and take a shower. You make sure it's a good shower. Because I'm coming up after. You see how clean you are. And all the really weird uh, stuff going on in the background. and Yeah, super psychedelic. Yeah. You know? Oh, I love it. Uh, let's see. And um, Wayne Gale, who is <laughs> RDJ himself. Yeah. Who's a very, he's, a, he's an Australian-based... Dude, he, he does has that accent, but um, he's very Geraldo Rivera kind of uh, gotcha journalism kind of guy in the movie. Right. You, Mallory, maybe kill us, but nuts. Insane. Today, they want to clean your mind because they feel your actions are dangerous. Tomorrow, they want to clean my mind. I don't need no fucking syndication because they feel what I say is dangerous. Where does it all end? This, uh, this was pre-Iron Man for all those folks out there. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. I think, like, yeah. was it... Yeah, on his kind of comeback, or was he before that? Yeah, he was. He was coming back. He he did Ally McBeal at this time for a while. Uh, I believe he was even doing uh, U.S. Marshals at this time, which uh, yeah. he apparently hated doing that movie. That's the sequel to right, The Fugitive. Right. But anyway, so let's see. Uh, this this movie is as we know that Tarantino likes to take stories and regurgitate them. It's based on a true story of two teenage lovers, uh, Charles Starkweather and Carol Ann hmm. Fugit, hmm. from a 1958 death trip that they took they basically went on a death spree together and they uh, oh wow but before natural born killers many 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 years before uh terrence malick did badlands which was also based on the uh stark weather uh fugit story and that starred martin sheen and sissy spacek and uh warren oates right Uh, great movie too little did i realize that what began in the alleys and back ways of this quiet town would end in the Badlands of Montana. Yeah, it's a really cool movie. Yeah, it was. I mean, and it's yeah, there's a lot of uh, similarities between Natural Born Killers and Badlands. Badlands actually inspired uh, Natural Born Killers and inspired Tarantino to write Natural Born Killers, and so that's why there's a similarity. But uh, anyway, sorry, go ahead. And the, and the basic core is is it's it's about two star-crossed lovers who are basically on a killing spree. Right. 
Yeah, and it's and, bru- uh, brutal and funny. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it's right. weird. And uh, yeah, so in the in, uh, in the movie, basically, Woody Harrelson and Mallory are just insane. They're just off their <laughs> rockers, and then and and, and uh, she idolizes him. And right, it's kind of a Bonnie and Clyde kind of thing as well. But right, the only thing is, is in reality, Cl- uh, Bonnie was a little crazier than Clyde was. But um, oh right, yeah, exactly. And it, but it's kind of like that, you know. Let's get. Uh, uh, Let's be uh, infamous for being terrible people, and uh, no qualms about it. I mean, there's not really much more to say about the movie than that. You know right. what I mean, yeah. you know. Well, just... I mean, I will. I will say that the way that uh, Stone films yeah. the movie is way out there. Yeah, really, right. Trippy, yeah. Psychedelic, all of that stuff. So the way he does is he brings this heavily edited, oddly filmed influence to this story. Right. And it's like heavily draped in this uh, style of of shooting psychedelically, like you're on drugs or acid or something. Like the way Stone filmed. Uh, the movie The Doors, it's draped in that kind mm-hmm. of artistic flair. Yeah, right. It was with the weird <laughs> naked Indian man. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so, in reality now... Okay, yeah. Uh, like I had... Just to remind you, I was saying that movie came out in 94. And so... And what happened in real life was uh, there was a, uh, a young couple who kind of met at a party named uh, Sarah Edmondson and Benjamin Darris. Now, Sarah was 19 and a year older than Benjamin. Uh, and Sarah kind of came from a uh, prominent family. Mm. And, and they had money and stuff like that. Uh, but she was kind of a bad girl. Acting and out, huh? So, like I said, she grew up rich and resentful of her parents. Her dad was an uh, Oklahoma Supreme Court justice. Oops. His name was James Edmondson. Yikes. And her uncle was state attorney general drew edmondson right? holy jesus so Ugh. they're they're pretty high up there right? yeah that uh, yeah that and, is an embarrassment to them they are that's the worst thing they could think of <laughs> yeah that kind of thing and especially one that she's doing drugs and stuff two that she's hooked up with some low-class weirdo druggy guy and then now they're gonna do something even more horrendous <laughs> Yikes. yeah totally Ugh. yeah and, and you know as she enters her adolescent years uh the trouble begins immediately so she's probably borderline in some ways uh, borderline personality issues oh yeah well yeah but uh she immediately gets into drugs like and she spray paints her entire room black she gets into trouble with cops all the times right all the time mm-hmm. and uh uh, during at a party one night, she meets up with Ben, and uh, who's a high school dropout from the wrong side of the tracks. <laughs> and the kid too. Sarah fi- <laughs> and and Sarah falls pretty hard. Oh, of course, he's a bad boy. So on uh, March sixth, uh-huh. they spend a, a night in uh, Sarah's family's cabin in the woods, mm-hmm. and they are obsessively watching the movie Natural Born Killers uh, from beginning to end, over and over again, all night long through the night while doing. You know, whatever kind of drugs Uh-oh. and all this shit. Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> you and probably see the movie more on its terms in that state of mind, but... <laughs> right, right. So on March 6th of 95, uh, they head out from the cabin to a Grateful Dead concert in Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, hyped on the movie, they decide to, we're going to kill somebody. No. Oh, geez. <laughs> yeah. Yikes. But uh, they pull into a small town called Hernando, uh, Missouri. 
and Ben forced this guy, William Savage, who was about 58, to pull over, you, you know, by using his car. And he walked up and just shot him straight in the head oh, with a 38 revolver. Jesus. Yep. That's the worst. Just left him there. Oh, that's Like, that's bad. I know. There's no control. Right. There's no control. You have no idea what's going on. You just all of a sudden are pulled over and you're going about your day. You're pulled over by some car. And then you're just, boom, shot right in the face. Yeah. And it's like... What happened? What did I do? Like, where did this come from? I just feel bad for that guy, man. I know. But at least he's probably dead quick. Uh I don't know. That's the only positive thing Yeah, exactly. It's just horrible. So two days later, in a town that I cannot pronounce... uh, (laughs) Oh, come on. Give it a shot. (laughs) Ponchatoula. Ponchatoula, I think it is. Did you live there? You live everywhere. Yeah, no. It it was close. It was up the road a piece. (laughs) (laughs) It was in Louisiana. Right. So uh, (laughs) the the couple pulls into a Time Saver convenience store. And uh, there's a a hooded figure is seen on the cameras of the store. Walks in and and pulls a gun on the... And shoots the female clerk. And her name is uh, Patsy Ann Byers. She shoots her right in the neck. Oh, man. They don't know who... If it's the... If it's... uh, um, Her or him? Yeah, her or him. Ben or Sarah. They don't know who did it. Man. And... Uh, she she was too caught off guard to know. But she survives as a quadriplegic. Oh, man. God. Oh, wait. Oh. I spoke too soon. Uh-oh. I should have scrolled uh, one more line. <laughs> update, everyone. <laughs> we just got an update. Uh, top of the hour, everyone. Uh, we just got an update. She died. Oh, she just <laughs> yeah. died. Oh, yeah. No, uh, she pulls a gun. Uh, <laughs> she is able to identify the shooter as a young adult female. So Whoa. we now we know. It was her turn. That uh, Sarah's done it, too. Right. So it's Taking both of turns. Them. Yeah, right, yeah. right. That's awful. So... A lot of time goes by, and June first, ninety five, ninety five mm-hmm. hits, and uh, an ex boyfriend of Sarah's from before Ben is pulled over by Muskegee police for a minor traffic violation. Upset about the lost relationship, the ex talks about Sarah and Ben's exploits. I guess the word had gotten back to town and all that nope. shit. Small towns. So Ben and Sarah are picked up by the feds the next day. Oh Jesus. And uh, Sarah has since been released on parole after serving twelve of her thirty years. Jesus! But 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 her parole is 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 on until twenty twenty five. Wow! And uh, Ben is still in prison. Of course, he's <laughs> he's poor. He's uh, from the wrong side of the tracks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he has no defense attorney. Right? They're like he didn't. Throw the away. victim. So this is where it gets kind of interesting. The victim, uh, the quadriplegic victim, Patsy Byers, mm-hmm. sued the young couple. Right. But amended uh, the lawsuit to include Time Oliver Stone and Time Warner. Holy Jesus, really? She was advised by her uh, friend, who was John Grisham himself. Oh, well. She, she wow. personally knew John Grisham. Wow, the writer, the book writer. And uh, uh, product liability claim mm. was what it was called. And uh, stating that the filmmaker should have known that the movie would have inspired people to act this way. Hmm. And she lost uh, her First Amendment liberties. Well, of course, yeah. And that's the story of the natural-born killer's killers. Well, I mean, okay, we're getting into a territory now that I, I, you have to address it because it's out there, it's prevalent, it's with books and video games and movies and TV shows and all of this stuff, and that is, it does this, watching this stuff or reading this stuff, inspire people to do these things or give them ideas to? Well, it's, it's not unlike you were saying in the first story a little bit. 
with the uh, you know the insanity plea and saying that uh, Travis Bickle made me do it. Right, right, exactly. And I mean, as I said, this this happens with so many things, not just the natural born killers, but you know, there's a lot of people that go out there, they watch these movies, they read these books. I mean, you, you take Catcher in the Rye, that has a lot of people, serial killers, that have carried that book around with them. Yeah, and right. Read into the t- subtext of that, and for some reason, brought out deadly stuff. Yeah. You know. And and, well, and within reading that, they end up doing that. And I don't, I you can't blame that on the book, in my opinion, or the movies. It's just people. Well, my my way to agree with you and then reinforce what you're saying is right. There are literally millions of other people who have read the book and haven't killed anybody. Right. Exactly. So yeah. <laughs> Take a little personal responsibility. Right, you know? exactly. And that's that's where, I mean, I, under, I, I hate that this happened to this woman, and I realize that pointing at this particular big product is a way to really make a statement and stuff, but it's the people who watched it, not the product that they watched. Yeah, it's like a civil lawsuit. Right, yeah. and bringing, I mean, it, what's really weird is that John Grissom was encouraging her to do this, being that most of his books that were adapted to screen were done by Warner Brothers, the production company. Yeah. <laughs> like, what are you doing, man? I know. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Like, The Client and The Time to Kill, all those movies. Right, right. That's yeah, crazy. What, what a... So, pretty wild. Yeah. That's a crazy story. Well, I got a, I got a story for you, Tim. You ready? What's ha- what is it? I can't wait. I'm on the edge of my seat. <laughs> well, scoot back and get comfortable. <laughs> anyway, so yeah. the story begins in a place you're real familiar with. Yeah? Yeah. You're Oh, dang. <laughs> your your old stomping grounds in Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, Colorado seems to hold more psychos than uh, Florida. No, it's just a matter of time before he becomes a drop of blood in my glass slide collection. But uh, anyway, this is the uh, Aurora Movie Theater shootings is what we're going to talk about. Right. So in uh, July 20th of 2012, a movie uh, titled The Dark Knight Rises, which is the third and final film in the Christopher Nolan uh, Batman franchise. Oh, you think darkness is your ally? You merely adopted the dark. I was born in it, molded by it. It opens to midnight showings around the country, and Colorado, of course, is doing this as well. Right. Uh, it's a giant film in a franchise of films. The movie before this, the, the Dark Knight, was one of the biggest comic book movies ever opened. Why so serious? This story is about a man named James Egan Holmes, who apparently uh, was, by what people have described him, as a troubled young man who uh, was uh, standoffish. He was it was a quiet man, as most people say, about raging homicidal maniacs. And a lot of people said that about this uh, particular man. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. And he's probably not taking the right meds. <laughs> right, exactly. But uh, so James Egan Holmes, uh, who apparently in 2010 was going to the University of California, Riverside, received his undergraduate degree in neuroscience and with the highest honor. So he was a pretty smart dude. 
Oh, man. But uh, apparently, as you alluded to earlier, there was uh, early signs of mental illness. Uh, he heard something called nail ghosts that he referred to, which hammered on the walls at night when he was a kid. Uh, and even at age 11, he attempted suicide. Right. And I guess uh, that even grew into he saw he saw things out of the corner of his eyes that was in the shadows that were flickering things he thought were beings that were fighting with actual weapons. And then... Eventually, a, a social worker that he saw sent him to a psychiatrist because he was always depressed. And I guess he was obsessed with killing things right. for over like a decade or something. Right. But uh, 2008 hits. Uh, he goes to see The Dark Knight because he's a big fan of Batman and everything. And I guess the Heath Ledger uh, performance of the Joker really caught his eye and he locked onto that. That's the, the uh, disparaging anarchy, like uh, life is better without control kind of thing, right? Right, right. Right. That darkness that he carried in that movie was right. basically about that. Right. And, I, and apparently that performance really stayed in his head because, as I said, you know, that's in 2008 when Dark Knight comes out. And then 2010, he's at that college. He's earning all those accolades. So that thing stayed in his head. So, you know, he ends up going to Aurora, Colorado. He moves there. He's in a one-bedroom apartment. He leaves a lot of uh, uh, things online to be able to follow. So he's on Match.com. He's on Adult Friend Finder. He leaves his resume on Monster. Uh, and he's even on some message boards that I guess provide reviews for sex workers. Yeah. Or something like that. So I guess uh, he's on there. They can track him that way. So in uh, October of 2011, he begins dating a uh, fellow student. Uh, that lasts for about two months. And then she ends up leaving him because she says he's really standoffish. And when he does talk, he kind of freaks people out with certain like jokes, apparently, quotation that he says. Makes people feel uncomfortable. And she expressed to him to get some professional help which he didn't really take seriously so they ended up breaking up their relationship in january of 2012 uh -huh. and uh, this is probably the impetus that really starts putting him in uh to the mindset of, of putting a plan forth oh okay but in may of 2012 he ends up buying a glock 22 pistol uh later on in the month he ends up buying a remington 870 express tactical shotgun oh wow uh, in june he ends up buying a smith and wesson m and p 15 sports rifle apparently he buys 3,000 rounds of ammunition for uh the glock 3,000 rounds for the m and p and 350 shells for the shotgun and he buys that all over the internet so yeah all right so as i said 2012 june 20th uh he has his ticket to go see the midnight premiere of the dark knight rises he brings all this stuff in his car uh puts it in the bag parks to the back of the theater where apparently it was lightly used walks to his car uh he uses some kind of tablecloth to prop the door open oh wow it's not real visible of the door being propped open very lightly goes out to his car loads up with the gear and i guess at the time he's wearing mm -hmm. a gas mask a load-bearing vest not a bulletproof vest but a load-bearing vest a, a ballistics helmet bullet-resistant leggings, a bullet-resistant throat protector, a groin protector, and tactical gloves. At the same time, he has earphones in, and he's listening on an iPod to techno music. Mm -hmm. But he re-enters the theater through the door he left open, throws in tear gas, and then opens fire. Right. Yikes. Yeah, I remember hearing that. And I guess a lot of people thought it was a part of the show, like it was a publicity stunt or maybe it was just a prank because there was a lot of people there that was wearing costumes anyway because of the nature of the show, the programming. So people were dressed like Batman or Catwoman probably or Bane maybe, Joker, whatever. So a lot of people didn't understand what was going on. Yeah. Apparently bullets from where he was firing and it was in Theater 9 where they were and 
some of the bullets went through the wall and hit people in theater eight which was right next door so wow. people got hurt doing that uh, apparently all in all he fired 76 shots uh, six from the shotgun 65 from a semi-automatic rifle and five from the 40 caliber handgun yeah okay the first 911 uh, call was made at 12.39 a.m. Police arrived 90 seconds later. Oh. So they got there really, really fast. And I guess uh, a lot of cops uh, surrounded the area were going in the inside and the outside to try to help with all the chaos that was going on. And uh, one officer at 12.45 spotted Holmes okay. by the side of his car. Uh, at first he thought he was with SWAT because of the gear that he was wearing, but right. then they were just like, wait a minute, what's going on? Why is he next to that piece of shit car? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. But um, I guess he gave up without uh, putting up a struggle or anything, very willing, without resistance. Uh, once they ended up arresting him, right. they said he was uh, very calm and uh, d- kind of disconnected, though. And uh, when they got his gear off and everything, they saw that he had his hair that was dyed, and he called himself the Joker. It was kind of yeah, like, he has the colored he has the colored hair and right. all that stuff yeah exactly and so that was the shooting part it was of course right. a horrible horrible tragedy it was the biggest mass shooting up until the 2016 orlando nightclub shooting yeah but uh, 12 people unfortunately lost their lives uh, 82 casualties were reported altogether 70 people hit by bullets so it right. was a horrible horrible thing now here's the thing that i don't remember hearing about that is just completely bonkers crazy uh, and that is that uh, when apprehended, Holmes ended up telling the police that he had booby-trapped his apartment with explosive devices before he headed off to the movie theater to do what he did. Uh, police then evacuated the five buildings surrounding the Aurora residence where he, he lived. So uh, one day after the shooting, uh, officials disarmed the explosive device that was wired to the apartment's front door, allowing a remote-controlled robot to enter and disable the other explosives. The apartment held over 30 homemade grenades wired to a control box in the kitchen, which was filled with at least 110 liters, uh, 30 U.S. gallons of uh, gasoline. Oh, Jesus. Right. I, don't, I don't think I remember that. Yeah, I, I didn't know anything about this bomb thing until I started doing research for the show. So he, when he leaves for the movie theater to go do the shooting, he leaves his door open and cranks the music on his stereo so if someone hates it and they go up to try to report it, they see the doors open. If they open the door to see what's in there, what happens is it triggers the bomb. Turn and up it, and blow the, <laughs> right. blow the apartment up. Right. Yeah, it would have been pretty explosive and everything. But luckily, he told the police about it before someone actually did that and and uh, went in there and set it off because it would have been a big blast, man. Wow. Yeah. So luckily he came to his senses or something happened. Some moral conundrum came over him to where he was able to tell those cops about it before someone actually opened that door and blew that place up and, and killed even more people. Yeah. It was just. Right. Well, and I'm sure he was thinking, you know, what would the Joker do kind of thing and, 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 yeah. and sort of like, right. you know, sitting in jail. Exactly, yeah. The master and then plan. the bomb goes off in the right. background kind of thing and it just kind of, <laughs> you right. know, laughing about it. You know what I mean? Right. That's that's pretty twisted. Yeah, master yeah. plan, yeah. So he was a pretty sick twist and I guess on April 27th of 2015, the trial began for him. Uh, he uh, confessed to the shootings but of course pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. By July 16th, he was convicted of 24 counts of first-degree murder, 140 counts of attempted first-degree murder, and one count of possessing explosives. Right. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Well, to tie it a little bit into my time in Colorado, uh, the dealership I worked at 
one of the kids that worked there, one of the other younger technicians, uh, a bunch of his friends were in the front row, and a bunch oh. of them got killed. Jesus, that's awful. Gosh. Yeah. Man. Yeah, it was bad news. Yeah, this is just an awful case, uh, but uh, that is the case of James Egan Holmes, who I guess kind of prided himself after the Heath Ledger Joker character. And uh, so, yeah. Well, goddamn, son. That was a brutal one. And, yeah. uh, you know, I often wonder, too, and this is just total bullshit and me not being a specialist in anything. But <laughs> right. It does seem like, you know, the 70s and 80s were the era of serial killers. And yeah. then the, the 90s and 2000s, 2010s evolved into the eras of, of public mass, mass, mass shooters. Yeah. It's awesome. So terrible something shifted in the you know the source of how we get off right killing people yeah i wonder if it's uh, the uh, accumulating the mass body count all at once instead of over a period yeah. of time want to talk to us you want comments you want reviews all this horse shit how could they not really instagram and facebook we are mm. at tftfp podcast if you want to tweet us or twit us or whatever it is out there yeah you just have to go podcast tftfp yeah because the other one was taken yeah and <laughs> Jerks. send us a gosh darn glorious little email no dick pics please uh, Tim, uh, don't, at, uh, don't tell him what to do. <laughs> <laughs> Care of Derek? No, the oh. email. The email address is uh, tftfppodcast at gmail.com Glorious, and we also have a spectacular little Patreon page that should be in the description wherever you downloaded this podcast. If you go there, you can get extra content, and just for half the price of a cup of coffee, you can get our warm voices poured into your ear freshly brewed it's just amazing it's really nice and we're so much better for you than coffee too we don't make you shit as much well i wouldn't go that far too <laughs> like subscribe <laughs> and review us and make it positive right i mean you can be negative about other things just don't mention us with the negativity we're, we're delicate over here i got a thin skin we're gonna delve into an interesting one uh we're going with 1971's a clockwork Orange. Whoa. Name! Alexander DeLarge, sir. Seconds! Fourteen years, sir. Crime! Murder, sir. Right! Take the cuffs off him, mister! By the perfect filmmaker of uh, Stanley Kubrick. All hail the king, baby. Uh, and uh, so in this movie, we have Alex, uh, mm -hmm. main character Alex, played by Malcolm McDowell. Yep. And uh, and it's a, an adaption of a book. That's right. That's right. Yeah, which is a common thing right. with, with Kubrick. He likes to adapt books. Adaptations. Right. But change them quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, he takes... He, right. Yeah. And I, I think that the author was somewhat involved in the, in, in, in the movie. Right. But, uh, to the extent that you can be, you know. With <laughs> Stanley Kubrick, right. right. Yeah. He's a force. That's but. right. You don't touch his shit. You don't tell him to do shit his way. He does things his way, and that's that. Get off my set. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, you have uh, uh, Malcolm McDowell as Alex, and you have a bunch of old English actors I've never heard of. 
<laughs> so right. The movie is is following uh, Alex, who is this uh, young leader of a gang, in an air quotes you can't see, but I'm telling you, air quotes, ultra violent mm-hmm. dystopian future as they run amok in London, raping and pillaging. I'm singing in the rain. Right there, right there, that thing sold that movie to me without needing to know anything else about it. I was just like, because I was so into futuristic movies, I was like, oh, this is set in the future? Fuck yeah. Right. And so, you know, you rent it, you get it home, you're waiting for this thing to happen, you put it in, and it's just very slow moving. And I'm a kid at the time I'm seeing this. This is another one of those films that I saw way younger than I should have, probably 10, 11, maybe even younger. And I'm thinking, where the fuck is the flying cars? <laughs> <laughs> right. There's nothing futury about it. Fuck. Yeah, I, I feel like the same thing. And I was even probably a little older, but still just right emotion, emotionally immature. So I'm like watching it at 14 going, I don't get this at all. Yeah, what's going on? With, why are they drinking milk? <laughs> <laughs> Right. Well, and the funny thing is, the, the 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 whole world is about just these young kids just being just crazy violent, and yeah. they they all hang out in these like suited outfits, you know. Right. Yeah, and not just violent towards other people, but also to, to each other to, too. Yeah. yeah, they're beating the shit out of each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They have these really strange outfits, and yep. and and of course the movie's beautiful, of course, because it's Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. So it has a lot of really interesting shots, and like the background screen, you know, when they're driving the car yeah. and all that stuff, and they're in this crazy fucking car that you, right. nobody could fit in. Right. Yeah. But it's all super hyper realistic and all that. But um, the, the 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 whole thing is, is he gets caught. He goes to jail, and they have a like a ref, uh, technique where they or they basically prop him up in front of this screen, right? With his eyes propped open, you know, they have Oof. like his eyelids held open with these metal Ugh, that's awful. things, and they're forcing him to watch all kinds of violent shit. And right. The, and the idea is, is to desensitize him, I guess, and calm him down. And, right. Stop it! Stop it! Please, I beg you. It's a sin. It's a sin. It's a sin. And a, and it works. He becomes a member of society that right. is um, reformed and quite lovely. Just, well, reformed, yeah. Yeah, and. And the thought, the sight of violence just makes him completely ill after it. Right, right. And it's this very kind of like Orwellian, highly controlled society anyway. Right. You know, that takes place in the future. Right. So the quandary of the movie is, is basically what is worse for Alex? Is it to be free to destroy and rape or kill or to be reformed where freedom is completely restrained and he's... uh, basically shackled by society right yeah because he's having to play by their rules now since they've uh, castrated him right in, in a sense of violence right all of that stuff so so this is what happens in reality um stanley kubrick himself bans the movie from theaters in england and here's why hmm. a boy beats a homeless man to death for a few pennies oh my God. that happens when the movie comes out Ugh. A 16-year-old dressed like Alex in the white outfit with the panties over it and the black hat and all that. They have, they wore, like, black bolo hats and right. all that stuff. Uh, they, they were called droogs. They called themselves the droogs. He savagely beats a 15-year-old kid. Oh, my God. Uh, and then a, uh, a 17-year-old Dutch girl is gang-raped by a group of uh, Lancashire boys as they sing Singing in the Rain. <laughs> oh, my God. So yeah. they are directly, directly 
yeah, reliving, reliving yeah. the movie. And this is happening within the first year of release. Jesus. So that's why he himself, and, and, and I think there was a lot of threats to him because he lived in London. Oh, well, of course. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, uh, oh, so that's he, awful. That, because you're seeing yeah. this thing that you're putting your blood, sweat, and tears into. You're adapting this novel. And as we said before, it come, it, it's a novel before it's a film. He's directly adapting it and everything. And he's basically putting his blood, sweat, and tears into this artistic piece. And then it turns into this, something this vile. You want to pull it, of course. Well, you yeah. don't want to inspire other people. But even long after... Uh, the movie so like we said that movie was 71 these events were around 72 uh, yikes man that's awful December uh, there was a Thursday uh, December 15th in 2005 a gang of youths was found guilty of killing a bar manager during a happy slapping they called it what the hell a spree of random violence which they filmed on their mobile phones and uh, the a teenage girl and three young kid, uh three kids mm-hmm killed this guy this bartender david morley 38 years old uh good lord who had he had survived a, a soho nail bomb blast in 1999 but he got beaten to death by these uh clockwork orange style oh kids God. yeah final destination shit right there so Yikes. that's the long and short of that one there's you know good I, lord there's not much depth into that it's just right it doesn't need to be Raw. That's a really raw one. And, yeah, and it, it's terrible. Yeah. I'm dancing and singing in the rain. So... Let me lob the ball back into your court there. Yeah, there. yeah. This ball's got <laughs> lob all over it. What are you doing to me? What do you got? What do you got for me? All right, so next up is uh, not a movie, but it's something else. Oh, I know what's coming. Oh, do you? Do you know the story of the killer lumberjack by chance? Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's what happens. No, this is about the show Dexter, which also was based on a series of books that was made preceding the series. They were called uh, Darkly Dreaming Dexter. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, the first book was, but Dexter was always in the title of the books and everything. Yeah. Uh, But uh, we're talking about murders that were, I guess, inspired directly from the TV series. But the series was brilliantly cast as uh, Michael C. Hall. It plays Dexter. He was. Yeah, Yeah, he was perfect. It's like he was born to play that part. Perfectly, yeah. He he does it with such ease, the voice, everything he uses, his look, just perfection. There's something strange and disarming about looking at a homicide scene in the daylight of Miami. It makes the most grotesque killings look staged, like you're in a new and daring section of Disney World. Dahmerland. At least all the way up till season four, and then it ends, and it ends perfectly with no other seasons following it whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, so uh, the show follows Dexter Morgan, who is a uh, serial killer by night, and then during the day, 
Yeah, he ends up working for the police department in um, yeah the, Miami Metro uh, right. police department. Right, he's a blood spatter analyst by uh, day, serial killer at night. He has a code, so he only kills other killers, and that's that uh, whole yeah. thing. The code's given to him by his adopted father, who finds him in this horrible tragedy thing. I can't get into it right now, but basically, he has this code instilled to him by his uh, father that his father recognized he was going to be a serial killer. He recognized all of the signs as he was growing up, so he realized instead of trying to, he fight- recognized he recognized the pattern of psychopathy in his son and realized he was going to have to treat teach him this code in order to keep him from getting caught because right. he loved the kid yeah exactly so instead of uh, him using his killings on innocence he uses it as a weapon on other yeah, killers right weapon right so right. uh dexter is able to use this code to fight other serial killers which there's an abundance of in in florida if you know anything about true crime there's a lot of killers out there in florida <laughs> yeah but our true story is about mark twitchell Right. And Twitchell was born in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Uh, since he was a kid, apparently he dreamt about making big, gigantic blockbuster films. And uh, he has a correlation with you and I, and that is he's a big, geeky nerd about certain films, especially the Star Wars universe. But I guess in 2007, he actually directed a fan film for Star Wars called Star Wars The Secrets of the Rebellion. Really? Yeah, I guess uh, the film never saw a release. It was never finished, but uh, he also got a few jobs on a few smaller little films, little horror independent things. But uh, uh, he, he was slowly building up his resumes to work towards, I guess, being a bigger director. Right. But I guess Twitchell had kind of an obsessive personality when it came to things that he ended up liking. So a lot of entertainment properties like Star Wars or Matrix, X-Men, stuff like that. And I guess his most recent obsession with something from the entertainment world was with the show Dexter. Yeah. So because he was obsessed with Dexter at this time and uh, he was a struggling screenwriter, movie maker kind of guy, he decided that he was going to actually physically engage in an actual murder, but also document it for a screenplay. Yeah. So this Twitchell guy ended up, I guess, renting out a garage somewhere in Edmonton and then uh, using it to store props and stuff for movies that I guess he was either going to make or had made, and he was using it to store facilities and stuff like that. And well, he was also going to use this as his Dexter kill room. And so he got onto a website, which was called uh, Plenty of Fish, which is a dating site. And um, Plenty of Fish, I've heard of that. Yeah, I, I mean, I've, I've, I've heard this story before, right. but... Uh, yeah, it's pretty. It gets pretty bad, twisted. Yeah, yeah. So Twitchell uh, ends up uh, making a fake profile on this Plenty of Fish dating website as a woman to lure his prey, to lure guys to him because he wants to kill a guy. And so he starts chatting up the guys. Yeah, yeah. So Twitchell has this first victim that he lures to this garage. Uh, the victim gets out of the car. Uh, heads to this garage where he's supposed to meet up with this girl. Twitchell comes out with this hockey mask that apparently he had used in a horror movie that he had filmed in this garage that he had rented like a week before. Oh, man. So Twitchell tries to attack this victim. The victim somehow manages to struggle and get away, not after alerting some people who are walking by. Those people hear the ruckus, call the police. The police show up Mm -hmm. and uh, basically see no sign of anything happen. Uh, so they're just like, well, I wonder what that was about, and kind of scurry off or whatever. <laughs> yeah, right. And then uh, a week later, 
uh, on October 8th of the 2008. Yeah. Twitchell lures another guy. This guy's name is John Altinger. Uh, he lures this guy back to that same garage. He has him park in front of that garage. Uh, this John Altinger gets out of his car uh, as he is told by the person who supposedly is his date from Plenty of Fish. Enters the garage, and then from there, John Altinger goes missing. Right. Uh, luckily, this John Altinger had the sense enough to leave word with friends and family of the address of where he was being sent to on this date. So he was smart about that. Oh, okay. Uh, well, that's th- good. These people, once he's gone missing and things get out of the ordinary, he doesn't show up for his job. He's sending weird emails like, hey, I met this girl. We got along so well. I'm now going to Costa Rica. And he's sending this to his brother and, and retiring from his job over like an email or something. Oh. So, of course, all of this information is pointing back to Mark Twitchell because John Altinger was smart enough to give everyone that address once he's missing for so long. Right, They right. give the police this information, and, of course, the police bring in this Mark Twitchell to ask him questions. He, of course, denies it, but for some reason, he still has this John Altinger's car and laptop. It says that he bought it off of this guy off the street. So... All of this stuff is not jiving at all with the police. They end up arresting Mark Twitchell on October 31st of 2008 uh, for the murder or uh, basically the disappearance of this John Altinger because they know that this guy, and by this time they have already got word from this other victim that got away from Mark Twitchell, and that guy gives the rundown of what happened to him that night because he never went forward before oh no so basically this first victim says that when he arrived he did the same thing parked in front of the garage the garage was up about maybe three feet he was told to walk into the garage he walked into the garage it was dark and then out of nowhere in the darkness this guy starts getting prodded by this stun gun Uh yeah right so luckily the victim manages to not pass out from the stun gun and starts to fight back a little bit uh Twitchell at this time is wearing a this hockey mask, which apparently makes it really scary. Yeah. And then uh, he pulls out this gun. The victim grabs the gun and luckily feels that it's plastic, so knows there's no danger from that gun. Tries to get out. His feet start feeling the effects of the stun gun, and he starts to fall down. Twitchell grabs the victim's feet to try to pull him back into the garage because the victim's halfway out of the garage again trying to escape. And that's when these people who see the attack are walking by, see that happening, are afraid it's a, a ruse, like a trap. And then instead of helping, they run off and they call the police. And as I said before, that's when the police show up. They see those signs of struggle, wonder what's going on, and then say, oh, well, and they take off. Uh, the victim managed to get away, get back in his car, and get out of there. He never reported it because I guess he was just like, oh, man. I was Right, right. Hearing what happened to him is just horrifying. <laughs> yeah. So the police, they search the laptop of Twitchell's, and they eventually come upon this document that's like a script that it describes everything that the first victim told the police about the attack in detail, and then the script talks about that being a failed attempt and then the next guy coming and everything that happens to the next victim is described all in the script and they essentially i guess they use that as a confession because twitchell isn't saying anything isn't talking or saying anything about uh what he actually did or didn't do oh yeah but he essentially describes the murder of john altinger uh basically in this script saying that uh, he stabbed him in the heart and killed him and then put his hands behind him, started to dismember the body. Uh, The script even says something about cutting his head off and then using it 
as a puppet putting his hand up in the head cavity and using it as a puppet moving the jaw up and Jesus down Jesus Christ and all of this stuff it's just crazy stuff and uh, without Twitchell's confession they still have a ton the police still have a ton of evidence all of this blood evidence in this garage and all of this stuff and, uh, but eventually uh, quite a few months later Twitchell finally confesses to the murder saying it was self defense but tells them where this Altinger body is, and he hid it in some sewer. Yeah. But uh, Twitchell is convicted of first-degree murder in 2011. Uh, he is sentenced to 25 years to life uh, with no possibility of parole for 25 years. After 25 years is up, he actually has potential to uh, be uh, paroled if he has good behavior and all of that stuff. So. That is a fucked-up story. Yeah, that's that's a good one. Yeah, right. I know. We all love Dexter until the Trinity Killer left. Yeah, <laughs> damn him. And I've met John Lithgow, by the way. Yeah, you did, huh? Nice. That's great. Yeah, he was a nice guy. What a guy. Very friendly. heading back into my court again and uh we're gonna do american psycho exceptional film hi pat bateman nice to meet you so what's the topic of discussion love it one yeah. of my favorite movies Me as well it was uh from, it was the movie was released in the year 2000 and was directed in by merrick 2000 yeah a little homage to conan good old conan <laughs> uh directed by mary heron yep so it stars christian bale the dark knight himself uh as patrick bateman or is he patrick bateman he's batman we don't know <laughs> yeah but he's a shell of a man who follows a regime of perfection to keep his demons at bay there is an idea of a patrick bateman some kind of abstraction but there is no real me only an entity something illusory and though i can hide my cold gaze and you can shake my hand and feel flesh gripping yours and maybe you can even sense our lifestyles are probably comparable i simply am not there so bateman as we come to know him is a successful wall street banker who picks up women and then butchers them after sex right so, did did this man, Christian Bale, kill and steal the real Bateman's identity or and slip into this world? It's up to you to decide. That there's a lot of ambiguity throughout this whole movie. You have no oh, yeah. idea. For sure. So because he, he even during the movie he's slipping into other people's identities. Right. right. People are you recognizing even, him as someone else. Right. And, right. Yeah, yeah. You don't yeah. even know if he's really Patrick Bateman. Right. And um so uh, as the movie's going along, he's kind of losing his grip. It's a Travis Bickle scenario of a downward right. spiral. Right, right. Yeah, he starts killing sex workers, and and then he starts killing his inner circle, and uh, the ending ends up completely ambiguous to where you don't really know as right. the audience whether he did any of this or right. it really happened or was it all in his imagination. Right, and uh, it's beautifully written. It's a- beautifully comes, written a beautiful piece of satirical right it's, it's very funny. satirical it's very funny yeah of everything uh, in it it's 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 not meant to offend one particular 
area, it's meant to offend everyone. <laughs> <laughs> totally. That high society area. Right. Just everyone. It attacks everyone, but in a very beautifully sharp-tongued, satirical way. It is an adaptation from a popular book. That, had, and- that, that was even more gruesome and more polarized on its right release. right right <laughs> and and uh it did have a very uh not polarizingly bad sequel starring mila kunis <laughs> and william shatner i just have this to say shut up meg shut up meg <laughs> <laughs> right yeah so it's basically you you know uh, one of my like i said one of my favorite movies it's when i really became to, became aware of christian bale as a even though he, he was a kid when I was a kid, and he was in that uh, Empire of the Sun and all that and stuff. Newsies. Like, and Newsies. And Newsies, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Which right. he gained 80 pounds for. I didn't know this, but that's a fun fact. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, uh, no, I really, really took notice in this movie because I just thought it was so freaking cool. And, yeah. Uh, it has a great cast. Jared Leto and Chloe Sevigny and... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Reese Witherspoon. Uh, totally. I mean, linking to something we just talked about not too long ago, I'm with you on seeing Christian Bale for the first time, really recognizing him. So right. when he was named as the new Batman for Batman Begins, everyone was kind of poo-pooing it. Or if people thought he'd make a good one, they were evaluating over how he did on that. What's that Matrix? Ri- not ripoff. You, oh, you did, Equilibrium. Equilibrium. Everyone was like, oh, yeah, he was great. And, we, and I, when I heard it, I was just like, oh, he was so good in uh, American, American Psycho. Psycho. He oh. would be great. Yeah. Yeah. Equilibrium is awful. Yeah. Yeah. So what's this is what happened in reality. Uh, Elliot Roger, uh, 22, he basically shot six people in Santa Barbara in 2014, Oof. right before he killed himself. Yeah, this kid is utmost douchey. If you've ever heard any video footage of him or seen yeah. video footage of him, he's the biggest douche ever. The so way he, he talks. Hey, Elliot Roger here. I'm just sitting in my car right now after watching that beautiful sunset descend beyond that hill up there. Enjoying a nice vanilla latte. He's he's probably wanting to be like a this right. perfect male figure of a Patrick Bateman, and right. there's no fucking way. No. I don't know why you girls are so repulsed by me. It doesn't make sense. I do everything I can to appear attractive to you. I dress nice. I'm sophisticated. I'm magnificent. I have a nice car, a BMW. Well nicer than 90% of the people in my college. I'm polite. I'm the ultimate gentleman. And yet, you girls, you never give me a chance. I don't know why. So I guess he was trying to act out the role of Patrick Bateman when he went to on his killing spree to make up for the fact that he felt like a failure in real life. And, and like I was just saying, and, uh, in one of Roger's many scathing YouTube clips, he appears to reference the film American Psycho. And it might be that uh, he's taken the main character as a role model, basically. This was actually covered, if any of you out there are also fans of a true crime podcast, it was covered very well on another one called Sword and Scale. Um, and they do oh, play... Oh, yeah, 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 they, yeah. Yeah, they do play some of the uh, the YouTube video audio on his show. That's and right. it's just hearing him talk is so right. pretentiously awful that it just makes you want to punch 
your device that you're listening to the podcast on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I do remember that now. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to get into too much detail about it. The guy was right, just yeah. a douchebag and he was compensating. Basically. Right. And he ends up killing himself. Like he shoots these people. He open, opens fire into all these areas where he's trying to go kill people. Kill six, you said? Yeah, six people. Yeah. Kill six people. I think injures of quite a few others, but then ends up when he knows the police are upon him, he's going to, he kills himself. He's just this douchey kid. Yeah, right. <laughs> So, um, Derek, mm. tell me a story. Tell me another. <laughs> Once upon a time, yes. there was a mentally ill person, <laughs> which is how all of these stories are yeah, starting. Yeah, right. Uh, but uh, apparently, and I don't know much about this book and movie that this particular one is based on, but there is one called The Collector, and no, it's not one of the more recent horror movies about the guy in the S&M mask with the zipper right. on the front who's rigging all of these weird traps to kill people in their homes and such like that. Apparently, there was a uh, a book and then became a movie of something called The Collector. It, it's, it's basically about guy, a man in the book, a protagonist in the book who comes up with wanting to keep women as his trophies and it's apparently right. you know not you know the there are people there are a lot of off of this movie and book alone there are a lot of weird stories that come off of these people who are doing murders and and killing and stuff uh the one i'm talking about his name is robert Burdella. what year was the movie I don't... the book was published in 1963 but there were film versions of it uh in 65 from the bold and breathless international bestseller the collector comes the suspenseful disturbing drama of a strange progression from thought to wish from desire to obsession from dream to nightmare yeah well i think it was the 60s one that caught my attention and 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 put it on the list here yeah, and I'm pretty sure that is the one that this gentleman that I am talking about, Robert Berdella, that's the that's the film he locked onto. Of, so yeah, it wasn't the book, it was the movie, but the movie is basically reminiscent of of the actions that the main character takes in the movie yeah. as keeping these women as as uh, trophies and such. Uh this Robert Berdella case is he's a serial killer and he's basically known uh, mostly as the Kansas City Butcher. Uh, what he would do is he would kidnap, rape, torture, and then murder men that he would capture. Oh, okay. And he would butcher them from 1984 to 87. He just kept doing this. And apparently, there might be even more people. This is just the amount that they found and he confessed to. But they're pretty sure he did more than what he was even saying. Wow. And he alluded to it, I guess, in certain interviews here and there of doing more, but then would never really cop up to any of them. Uh, but usually he would kidnap the person, uh, keep them in this room that he had in this Apparently it was like a hoarder's house, so it was really rife with with trash and all kinds of crap that he kept over years and years and Yeesh. years. 
he would yeah so even with the dead bodies you can't really make out the smell of death because there's so much crap in these house in this house uh he would he would seek out these men kidnap them strap them up and you know rape them of course torture them and torture by means of like taking battery acid putting it in their putting it in their eyes yikes drilling into the back of their head Oh my God! All kinds of stuff like this, and and on top of this, of of uh, uh, of raping them as well. And he would also basically, if you didn't listen to what he said, so he wanted you to call him master and baby and all these Whoa. stuff while he performed all of these re- weird sexual things on you and stuff. And he would usually keep the men up shackled and doing this stuff, torturing them day after day after day for six weeks, and then he'd end up killing them. Jesus and it, it wouldn't just wouldn't just be a slow death. He would like either strangle you for a little bit and then stab you and then strangle you some more and then stab you and all this stuff and then end up you know op- like slicing you open your torso open and dismembering you and putting you in garbage bags and dispensing you all over the different parts <laughs> of the house and stuff like yeah. It was really bad. Now that's brutal. That's this is this is I think taking the cake right here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is really awful. <laughs> Uh, he ends up being caught because one of the people that he ends up kidnapping and holding for, I think he only has this guy, the last guy that he, he keeps that's a survivor, but he ends up being tortured a bit. He, he, I think he has him for like around four days to a week, and the guy manages while uh, Robert Berdella leaves his house to go to work because yeah. he would do this. He'd leave them bound in these rooms and then go to work and come back in. Right. Um and the guy manages to get out of his shackles and then climb out of the house and go to a neighbor and tell them, hey, this is what's going on. And yeah. then cops show up. And apparently he goes without, he's like, yep, I've been doing it. Like this completely <laughs> you know, gives it all up. That's nuts. But yeah, crazy. But he, yeah, he ends up um, being arrested. They should conf- make a movie about this guy. They have. <laughs> they have. It's all it's all straight to DVD movies, but yeah, it's, know, yeah, it's right. one of those things. But... He ends up being convicted on two time, two counts of first degree murder, four counts second degree murder, and then um, life imprisonment without possibility of parole. But then ends up dying in 1992 uh, of a heart attack. That's crazy. That's yeah. a fucked up story, man. Yep. It's weird when shit like that, you know, goes in like this uh, almost like an alternating cycle of like uh, literature becomes. Film yep. becomes a murderer, becomes a film. Film, becomes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. inspiring. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's that 30-year cycle that we yeah, keep running right. into on this show. <laughs> I know. <laughs> wow, we're really on to something. <laughs> so I'm going to do RoboCop 2. This is an, another relatively short one, at least as far as the murdering ghosts there's not yeah. a lot of detail to it but so uh, so just dance till you drop the <laughs> robocop <laughs> yeah i used to love that song <laughs> i like it i like it <laughs> yeah, so that movie was 1990 uh and robocop 2 yeah 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 okay okay and Irvin Kirshner did was the director right Everyone yeah. shits on that movie, and I think it's actually it's, it's enjoyable. Yeah, it's supposed, I like it. Yeah, it's just yeah. you know, I mean, it, I don't know if it's quite on par no. with RoboCop, but no, I think it's, it's fun, fun though. Yeah. yeah, 
So basically, it revolves around violent kingpin Kane, played by Tom Noonan, who, you know, who doesn't love Whoa. that guy? What a Yeah, creep. that guy is awesome. And his crew of uh, nuke-addicted maniacs with no remorse. Uh, what is nuke? Nuke is that drug. Okay. That's that. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. They yeah, give they it to keep... him in that vial. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> when he's, yeah, yeah. Right. But they have, like, these little, like, eyedropper pinchers that they're shooting into their necks. Yeah, that's right, that's right, yeah, yeah. A rolling stone is worth two in the bush. Go fuck a refrigerator, Peckerneck! Anyway, uh, so this guy, Kane, has the underbelly of old Detroit under under its thumb, under the thumbs of his crew, and, uh... This includes a crooked cop named Duffy, who was played by the late Stephen Lee. He was kind of a, a little bit of a shorter, dorkier, kind of heavy set guy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and he kind of has a bit of a squeaky voice and all that right. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a scene in the movie where RoboCop catches up to uh, Duffy, who's an informant for a cane. RoboCop finds Duffy, knows what's going on, that he's in league with Kane, and he beats information out of him for where where, where is Kane and all this stuff, where's his, where's his spot. Right, right. And then Duffy gets arrested for being, you know, crooked. And uh, they survive the encounter, but barely. Kane's crew does. Right. And uh, they they spring, they basically put up bond for Duffy and they invite him back to the uh, uh, this basically this creepy ass rundown oh, hospital. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he's kissing their asses as he's coming going through the halls and all that stuff. They knock him out and then they lift him up and strap him onto the table. Yikes. And uh, then they wake him up and everybody's staring at him. And uh, as he comes into the big room and all that stuff, and he sees the operating table with Kane and all that stuff. Hey, Kane! Hey, it's, it's good to see you. Thanks for getting me out. He starts to verbally defend himself, like, I, I don't know, you know, it wasn't me. Kane, Kane, come on. I'm begging you, man. Look, I'll do anything. Okay. Are you kidding, right? Yeah, you're just kidding. Right. And, and as he's rambling, a scary-looking torture specialist guy comes into the room with some serious uh, surgery devices. <laughs> and uh, uh, Duffy laughs as he tries to joke the whole thing off, you know, like, ha, 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 you know. Right. And uh, the specialist takes the scaffold and basically giving uh, Duffy's sternum a couple of taps, begins to open him from his neck down to his gut. <laughs> Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the while, they go to Kane, and, and you know you can hear him screaming, and Kane is licking his lips, and his lady's freaking out. You know. You said you were just gonna scare him. And Kane goes, "Doesn't he look scared?" Basically, there's blood everywhere, and then he dies. So, right. this is what happens in real life. Uh, there oh, is Jesus. a a serial. <laughs> this is creepy because this is where I grew up in uh, Hudson Valley area of New York, my hometown. Hmm. Oh Jesus. This guy named Nathaniel White. He was act- he was a, a serial killer active in the Hudson Valley area of New York in the early '90s. And uh, White White is convicted of killing five women, and he found he claimed to have found inspiration for his first murder while watching RoboCop 2. That scene. Yeah. Jesus. Exactly. He said he. he, he this is a quotations from uh, Nathaniel White. He goes, "The first girl I killed was from." A RoboCop movie. 
I've seen him cut somebody's throat and then take the knife and slit down the chest to the stomach and left the body in a certain position. With the first person I killed, I did exactly what I saw in the movie. Yikes. End quotes. Yeesh. You don't really, like, you really don't need to hear any more than that to really get a perfect picture of what he did, and that's just fucking awful. I know. I remember yeah. seeing that in the theater. I saw RoboCop 2 in the theater because I loved the first one so much, yeah. and that scene alone, I was just like... Yeah, it's, uh, it's unnerving. Right. right. Which is a lot to say for a RoboCop movie, because there's a lot of really disturbing <laughs> yeah, shit in I know. both this of those movies. <laughs> yep, yep. Nathaniel White ended up pleading not guilty by reason of insanity for all of these murders. He ended up being convicted on all counts on April 14th of 1993 and sentenced to 150 years to life. He is still in prison. Well, it's back to me. Yes. (laughs) With uh, my last story here. Okay, let's hear it. Is of a young man who was watching and and got his inspiration apparently from Rob Zombie's remake of Halloween. Oh, dang. Case Michael Myers. To the untrained eye, there's nothing visually abnormal with this angelic young boy, but one must remember not to be fooled by his calm, unassuming facade. Okay. So that remake of Halloween, in case no one ever doesn't know this, uh, was uh, <laughs> Rob Zombie, the musician who went on to end up becoming a, a horror movie director. Yeah. Which I don't know why he hasn't moved into comedies, because he's just so good. <laughs> <laughs> right. But he, uh, he, he did horror movies. I think his first one was The House of a Thousand Corpses. Yeah. Devil's Rejects. And then right. both of those became pretty popular i don't know if they were major hits but i think that they both did pretty well yeah so he he's approached by the people who own halloween whoever distributor that was at the time and basically said we think you should be the person to remake this because we've made eight sequels to them and they're all shit now (laughs) right he ends up doing it and uh for I would say 40 minutes of the movie, it's pretty much a remake of John Carpenter's. And then the first part of the movie is young Michael Myers and exploring how this kid... So basically what he wanted to do, in case anyone out there hasn't seen Halloween, Halloween's about a uh, young boy named Michael Myers who kills his sister at the beginning of the movie and then is put away in the mental institution because no one knows why he did it. And now he's a grown man all these years later and escapes from this mental mental institution and goes on one night murder spree in this little town. Which happens uh, to be October 31st. Yes, Halloween. He gets to... On the night he killed his sister, right. that was Halloween. He was dressed up as a clown, I believe. Right. And so then he finds a a oddly colored, weird William Shatner mask. <laughs> yeah, right. And he uses that on the night when he escapes from this mental institution. And he goes around this little neighborhood and starts killing all of these people. And so that's the gist of it. You, everyone out there has to know what this is. Rob Zombie ends up remaking this and decides, well, if I'm going to remake it, I want to go at the angle of what was this kid's mental illness as a kid and where did it start and how did he do all this stuff so he explores that part probably the first 30 minutes of the movie that's all the uh, the movie is and in the first 30 minutes they show michael myers as a kid 
killing his sister and then her boyfriend who she's fucking around with her boyfriend upstairs so he kills them both and then he kills his stepfather i guess that's there at the time and uh so they show these these serial killer tendencies right that he has that he kills the animals and stuff before all this stuff happens and this happens on halloween night and all of this stuff so uh that part of the movie apparently now getting into the real story here uh there was well, a- let me just throw in that that also starred uh, our first reoccurring actor of uh, Malcolm McDowell from A Clockwork Orange. It was <laughs> right. the, the doctor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly. But uh, so a young man by the name of Jake Evans is 17 years old. Uh, this is in 2012. Uh, he sees this movie. He sees that particular scene where the kid goes on a rampage yeah. at the beginning, kills his whole family, basically, and decides, that sounds cool. <laughs> For some reason, that stands out to him. So he decides that he's going to get a knife, and he thinks on this after he, he watches this movie, and apparently he it's one of those things where he watches a movie over and over and over again, and it gets stuck in a loop in his brain. So he thinks, right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stab them. Just like he did in the movie, because in the movie he uses a butcher knife to stab these, his family. So he goes, while his mom and sister are uh, about to get ready for bed, I think his mom's in bed, his sister's getting ready for bed. He grabs a knife, he goes to go upstairs, and then he realizes, I don't know, maybe they won't die really quick, and I don't want them to suffer. <laughs> so he puts the knife back, and he goes and gets his mother's gun that she has for protection. Oh, and he decides while his mom's asleep, he goes in and he shoots his mom while she's asleep and kills her. And he shoots her six times. Jesus. Then he reloads the gun. And while his sister, of course, hears this comes running like, what's going on? I heard this and this. He shoots her and then goes downstairs. And because when he goes downstairs, because they're both upstairs, he goes downstairs and he hears his sister still making noise right he's like i don't want her to suffer so he goes up and he shoots her six times in the head oh my god and then he ends up calling 911 and then saying uh i just killed my mom and my sister what i just killed my mom and my sister you just killed your mother and your sister how did you do that uh i shot him with a uh, 22 revolver and then he ends up you know getting charged with murder at 17 years old. Now he's in a state mental hospital because the judge ordered for him to go and spend the first part of his sentence in a state mental hospital. And then, yeah, so now he's in prison. That's pretty brutal. Yeah. Wow. But that's that story. Yeah. Halloween, huh? Yeah. Thanks a lot, Rob Zombie. You turkey. Here I am, the sun with That's in every strip club I've ever been in. I know, right? Do, do the witches burn, do the witches Back to me, to my final story. Back to you. Did, did five apiece. Yeah. Uh, I did, uh, for my last one, I did an interview with the vampire. Whoa. So you want me to tell you the story of my life? Like I said, that's what I do. I, uh, I interview people. I'm a collector of lives. You'd have to have a lot of tape for my story. 
That's no problem. I got a bag full of tape right here. Uh, love the books. Movie's not so great. But, yeah, it has. You know. I I think it has a little bit of charm, but. Uh, well, I mean, it just it didn't age for me. I loved it when it was new. Right. But yeah, I think over time, not as I don't know. Uh, anyway, well, what, not, what if we don't know what it's about? Enlighten us, Tim. Yeah, I'm gonna tell you what it's about. The movie came out in 1994, and it's mm-hmm. from the, uh, it was directed by Neil Jordan, and uh, right, it's an adaptation of the of Anne Rice's uh, Vampire Chronicles trilogy, basically, and, and there's been many more books written after that too. But uh, right, basically, Interview with the Vampire was the first book, and then the Vampire Lestat was the second book, and then Queen of the Damned was the third book. Right, which I must say. Like growing up in the '80s and part of the '90s and stuff, that uh, of course this the book came out way before yeah the '80s. I think it was, right. in, it was the in the '70s. 70s. Yeah, yeah, it was in the '70s. Sometimes I remember hearing about the book in probably the late '80s, probably around the time when it started making no- news that they were going to try to make it, and then eventually coming around to reading it probably around early '90s. Yeah, and I was still pretty young, but thinking it was a really cool idea. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, it, I, I agree. I read the books when I was in uh, tech school, and uh, I thought... I don't How read old a, would you think you were? I was 25. Okay. Uh, I don't read much. I don't like reading books. <laughs> so they, I get bored reading, and those books those books I couldn't put down. I couldn't right. put them down. They were wow. so cool, and I thought, the character of Lestat is just the shit, you know? Of course, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's why I don't. I just don't think Tom Tom Cruise did <laughs> right. him any justice. <laughs> right. So, but anyway, um, in the movie, we'll start. We'll go back to this movie. Uh, 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 vampire Louis de Ponte de Lac. Ooh. <laughs> uh, apparently. <laughs> he's like, yeah, he's like a <laughs> he's a Louisiana Frenchman. Uh, right. But the movie starts with him sitting down in modern present day with uh, a reporter to recall the rather long story of his life. Right. He sits down with cuffs. Yeah. (laughs) 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 So as his recollection begins with Christian Slater, he's a plantation owner outside of New Orleans in the late 1700s and he loses his uh, wife and children to I believe plague or something and uh, then he and he kind of pretty much loses his will to live so mm-hmm. he's he's kind of uh, trying to drink himself to death basically and uh, I think he jumps into uh, jumps into uh, some water or you know, tries to drown himself and he's swept up by the magnanimous vampire <laughs> Lestat that's right. And as and he approaches him, you hear. Yeah. So basically, Lestat asks him. Do you still want death? Or have you tasted it enough? Enough. So he makes him a vampire. But Louis is a, a reluctant vampire, and he's not happy about it for a long right. time anyway. And he right. won't—he doesn't want to have to kill people to survive, and basically living off of uh, much to <laughs> Lestat, much to Lestat's disdain, he's living off of rats and <laughs> right and 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 other little vermin, <laughs> right, dogs and such. 
soon he comes around and uh to the whole lifestyle and and uh but he but he gets he grows tired of lestat's shenanigans and uh the plot thickens with the girl and uh you know uh they move they go to they end up killing trying to kill lestat <laughs> don't make me do this i cannot <laughs> that's that line he says it. <laughs> uh, brilliant so, very good everyone give him a hand for that one that was really good <laughs> so in reality this is what happens uh in the same year 1994 san francisco which is where the movie begins uh, right and and ends it bookends in san francisco <laughs> right Daniel Sterling, who's 25, and his girlfriend uh, Lisa Stellwagen. Uh, oh, this is a real. This is a real thing. This is the real part. Yeah. Okay. It happened the very same year. Oh Jesus! They were seeing the movie in the theater. The next morning, Lisa awakes to Daniel staring at her. She asked him. She asked him, "What's the matter?" And his response was, "I'm going to kill you and drink your blood." <laughs> That's what he says to her. Jesus. Whoa. The next evening, he basically catches Lisa. Daniel catches Lisa off guard and and stabs her multiple times. Jesus Christ. And begins drinking her blood. She manages to. She survives and she she manages to get help. Daniel gets arrested and in jail. He he claimed to believe in vampires, but didn't really want to be one himself. <laughs> I'm like, really? That's kind of well, sounds like you do. Yeah. He's like, I was influenced by the movie. I enjoyed the movie, said Daniel. But I wouldn't blame the movie. So at least this guy's getting it right. Yeah, yeah, right. At least he, at least even though he's cuckoo bananas, he right. has enough sanity to go, hey, I'm going to take responsibility for my cuckoo-ness. Right, we're finally ending on a positive note of uh, <laughs> it's well, not media's fault. Okay, so just real quick on this whole thing. Everyone out there, if... You awaken to no matter how long you've been with your person that you've been with, your <laughs> lover, and they are staring at you, and then go on to say that they are going to kill you. Don't stick around in that relationship. Yeah, right. That's a that's a healthy uh, word of advice, Derek. <laughs> you might want to call your friend or close relative and say, "Hey," or the police. <laughs> yeah, maybe them the most. Uh, I think I've had a threat on my life. <laughs> Yeah, there's a guy that I've known for a while, and he's doing things out of the ordinary. Right. <laughs> Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth and taste. So there we have it. That's our uh, little show about movies that um, uh, inspired real-life murders. Yeah, those yeah. are just terrifying and, and just... Yeah, and TV shows. We can't forget that. And now we're going to turn the mic towards you, the audience, and we want to hear, do you have uh, stories out there we didn't mention? Yeah, there's a lot of stuff. Or just comments and whatever you want to say. And No, no, no comments. Just no, do you yeah. have... <laughs> I don't give a shit what else you have to say. Yeah, right. Yeah. Opinions and crap. <laughs> we got enough of those in this world. <laughs> you can just take that opinion and shove it right shove up right your sludge hole. Ass. Yeah. <laughs> your wazoo kazoo. <laughs> uh, but no, no. In all seriousness, yeah, whatever you got to say, let's lay it on us. All right. So uh, I hope you uh, enjoyed the show, right? 
Right. Yeah. yeah. I hope it was entertaining and wasn't too far off the beaten trail. I hope you're not too disheartened by right. maybe us cutting a few jokes in the middle of these very serious topics. It's just our way of lightening the mood, as it were. Yeah. I hope you're not confusing us with uh, Georgia and Karen from My Favorite Murder. <laughs> because this was a little reminiscent of them, and they even did one of those stories. But uh, Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, I can't be charged with this because I don't listen to them. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, they ripped off the material themselves. So, <laughs> All right. So uh, what do you think? Should I hit the button? Or- yes. Hit the button. All right, ready? 